So hello and uh, welcome to our third and final uh, podcast focusing on Drops Like Stars by Rob Bell. We've had a chat about the previous chapters and in this one we're going to be talking about the last two chapters which are the art of elimination and uh, the art of failure. Now if you missed the other podcasts don't worry about it you can stop this and you can go back and find them because I'll put them in a, a little playlist so it doesn't matter uh, when you're listening to it and even if you haven't listened to those ones before you can still listen to this one you don't have to really listen to them in order. So uh, I'm here today with Ian Wallace. Say hello, Ian. Hello, Hal. Hello, everybody. There we go. See, he was on the he was on the ball, not like the other two. I said to the <laughs> other two, I said, "Say hello, Ian." And he's Ian Ian Mack. And he's like, "Oh, hello, yeah, yeah, all right." So yeah, so at least on the ball. So what we're going to be doing is working through some of the questions that the home groups are looking at through the Drops Like Stars material. So the art, of, the art of Elimination, the book talks about the way in which suffering takes away from us external things or things that we believe are important or things that we focus on. It strips away the excess. That's what it talks about. Strips away the trivial and the unnecessary. And through that process of being stripped away, we actually find out what's important. So the first question I have really for, for you, Ian, is do you find that in moments of suffering or moments of adversity that that holds true, that in stripping stuff away, uh, you actually find out what's really important? Uh, very definitely. I actually found this probably the most exciting and enlightening chapter of this whole book for me because I think uh, I'm very aware of being sort of caught up in a, in a culture where we try to do more and more to get things right. Uh, we, we sort of add layer upon layer that the whole advertising culture says, you know, if, if, if your life isn't right now, all you need to do is, is add this perfect shampoo or add this rejuvenating cream and everything will be, be, be wonderful. And actually, I think the reality of life isn't like that. I think a lot of what we get caught up in is a, a distraction or, or sort of insulates us from some of the realities of life. At the moment, you know, as you know, Hal, as we're, we're recording this, our Russell, and my oldest son, Ben, he's recovering from a stroke and having picked up COVID in hospital whilst he was there. And in a sense, when you're confronted with some of these realities of life, it puts everything else in perspective and actually you recognise how much trivia, in a sense, we gather around us, try to sort of make things right, rather than getting to you know, like the, the root of what's real and important. And, you know, I think, well, my experience is that so often, actually, what's really important is relationships, uh, when you get down to it. Uh, I think he uh, uh, talks about in the book about, you know, someone when they've received a a, a terminal diagnosis doesn't say, oh, I must, I must go off and cut the hedges or, you know, I must, must go and do this, that, tub and which. They say, no, actually, I want to spend time, you know, with my, my, my nearest and dearest, you know, so spend time with my loved ones. And I think a lot of, you know, I, I see it in a lot of the relationships around and when people come and talk about the problems that they're having. In a sense, their relationships have become cluttered with stuff you know with material things with with expectations and almost they've lost sight of, the, of what's really important in it all yeah i think there's a wonderful 
program on a couple of years ago called uh, Hypernormalization. It was one of these sort of documentaries by Adam Curtis that was on the BBC. And when he talked in that, he talked about the fakeness of our world. And he talked about us living in the state of hypernormality where everything is fake and we've forgotten what is real. And that kind of really rung true for me because we're so comfortable. And I think that's that's something that I suppose you'd understand more than other people having worked in places like Africa and all over the world. And it's certainly something I understood as a, a younger man when I, I worked in India mm. is we live in a world which is so comfortable, it becomes very, very fake very, very quickly. And we're not, we don't really have the courage to face the realities of life. And it's something I've noticed working as a priest is because we deal with tragedy, suffering and death all the time, where we live in a much more real world than, than most people. And I think that elimination thing of taking away the stuff that doesn't matter actually enables us to live in a more joyful way and a more real way this this chapter made me think about when I, I gave up work to go and be a priest I had a 80 percent reduction in income which and the weirdest thing was is even though we'd given up all that money the way we lived before and our house and everything else is we actually did more together and we had a better relationship me and my wife and had a more joyful life with less mm. And I always remember that. But the trouble is, is this addiction to things and to trivialities is really difficult to stand up against. Yeah. You know, it is really hard. Christmas brings it over to me a lot, you know, yeah. where the more stuff we have to buy, the more things we have to think about, the more trivialities we have to worry about, the more we forget about reality. But it's really stressful. Uh, I mean, you're certainly right that this is one of the things that, my experience in Africa taught me, and I, I'm sort of have to keep reminding myself because I'm in so much in danger of losing that. But I remember when I first went out to Africa, I'd been working in a, uh, a firm of solicitors in Westminster, which is quite a high-powered sort of place, and you know, sort of the expectation was that you'd sort of stay in a place like that and earn lots of money. And uh, one of the senior partners said to me, "Oh, you know, sort of a." why do you want to do that? You know, I'm sure you'll be back, you know, you do, go and do your, you know, good thing and then, then then come back sort of thing. Although he sort of felt, you know, I was making a, a, a mistake. And yet I could see they were very driven people and quite stressed out people. I, I arrived in Africa and in spite of the hardship of life in Africa, there was a joy and a lightness of spirit that I didn't experience in Westminster. Every week, you know, there would be a, a funeral in the church somewhere, you know, that you'd need to just go and sort of pay your respects to the, the family or something, because that was the, the harsh reality of life. But yet they placed a great emphasis on relationships and knew how to enjoy themselves in a way that I think sometimes we, we don't always know how to enjoy ourselves in quite that same way. I think I may have said this before on, a, on one of the podcasts, but uh, during my training, I did a placement at the Phyllis Tuckwell Hospice in Farnham. And uh, I spent quite a lot of the time in the, the, the day room, the daycare centre. there, And it was one of the happiest places I've ever been. It was absolutely extraordinary. It was full of people who were all 
suffering from motor neuron disease because there's a bit of a hot spot around there that nobody understands. And, uh, you know, yet there was sort of bright colours, there was jazz music playing, there was laughter all the time because the jokes were just flowing. They set this fabulous table for lunch, had a great lunch together. You know, there were people from all walks of life there. There was a, a professor from one of the London universities, there was a, a former politician, there was a, a council uh, a refuse collector, you know, sort of. Uh, and yet in this context of considerable suffering of in the face of, of a terminal illness of motor neuron disease, they still found joy and laughter. Yeah, and I think though that's that's the essence though of say something like if you go and do the last rites or you're ministering with those who are dying, is the strangest thing is love has the power to transfigure suffering into something beautiful. And that's not something you can easily put into words. And that's not something you can measure. It's only something you can experience by being there. And I think that what we've done in our society is because we've placed suffering and death at the edge of our society, because we're frightened of it, and we've kind of walled it away because we don't want to face it, is we've lost that ability to see the hope of love transforming and transfiguring suffering. And all we see suffering for is despair and I think that's why we get locked into these uh, cycles of despair and frustration really. I, I know my auntie who's from Zimbabwe thinks that the British people are hilarious because they have so much and they're always complaining and you know she ran away from Robert Mugabe to Aberaman <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, it's just like you know, to her it just seems so absurd and I think that's the thing with elimination is to see the benefits really of losing the stuff that isn't uh, important. And I think COVID's done that. That's not a question on you, but I think COVID has done that in the magazine article. I talked to you about fasting for humanity, fasting from humanity is a lot of the trivialities have been taken away from us in COVID and we've been forced to live in an unhuman way. So now what we're yearning for is not more Netflix or more Disney Plus or more entertainment or more this or more that. We're yearning for the really sort of basic, ordinary things that we've missed. I mean, I sometimes I think that in our heart of hearts, we, we, we know, you know, that's what it's really all about. I mean, you know, people talk about wanting a, a more simple lifestyle um you know they, they recognize that actually within that simplicity there can be you know sort of peace and happiness and and things and yet i think somehow we're not quite sure how to do it because it involves you know swimming against the tide and, and bucking the trends that have been woven into our society you know i said i was looking for a a passage that, oh, yeah. you know sort of before they are found it. I mean, so, I mean, it was this just this bit struck me just a couple of short paragraphs from the book he says great artists know that it isn't just about what you add sometimes the most important work is knowing what to take away removing clutter excess and all the superfluous elements and finding out in the process what has been there the whole time and Ruth and I quite enjoy watching that program called Landscape Artist of the Year. And I know if I were to do it, I would be fiddling around with detail and almost certainly spoil the painting. I'd overwork it. And yet the last one we watched, there was a, a guy there who had 
It's like one of those pit kitchen sort of scrape things, you know, sort of rubber, rubber sort of uh, things that, that gets cleans the sort of sides of dishes, you know, can scrape off the excess sort of uh, from your, your mixing bowl or something. And he was just sort of putting the paint on with, with this in sort of great swirls. And yet with relatively few simple things, he conjured up something that was more than just a, a direct copy of the image that was there, but had a sort of an emotional quality to it as well. And I'm just fascinated by that. At the bottom of it all, I think, is fear. The thing that holds us back from living simply is, is mm. fear. And what you're describing there with that artist is he just does it. He's not frightened of messing up. He just goes, right, I'm going to do it, and that's it. And I think that we live in a very risk-averse society, and a society that's very, very concerned about getting things right all the time and concerned about failure. And I think as Christian people, we can offer that freedom from superfluous stuff if we're willing to take the lead and take the risk. Because I do remember when I finished work, it was in my... I resigned and then we had this May ball that we used to have in the colleges. So we had the kind of summer do that we went to. Uh, so we all piled in and all that. And everyone was asking me uh, why I was going to, to, to go and be a priest because most people thought it was a wind up. They all thought I was got another job and I just told them I was going to be a priest just to sort of spin a yarn <laughs> for a laugh, you know? So they all said, it was just like, I think, I think it was, um, Debbie was a little bit of a gossip lover. Uh, said I, I said to her, I was going to go and be a priest. And then he said, Debbie said, you're going to go and be a vicar or something. I said, you know not to listen to her. She's, oh, no. But it came out, I'd done this. And most people were really almost kind of jealous of it because of the, the sort of throwing caution to the wind and just doing it and sort of living your dream, really. I don't know whether I'd have the guts to do it now, to be fair. Now, it's easy when you're 25 with no kids or anything like that. You just go, right, I'm going to go and do it. And I think in the church, I think we do need to be more courageous and as people and to take that risk of not having things. And remember the words of my mother, I always quote her, my uncle died at 40 of an heart attack and he had four, was it three or four pensions and thousands in savings because he worked for British Steel and he had quality, he was on his own, he was a bachelor. And people are on about saving money and making plans for the future and all these sorts of other things. But when you talk like that, my mother always goes, well, my brother John, he had three pensions and he was dead at 40. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, how do you think... <laughs> Fair enough. But I think there's yeah. something in that, you know, of yeah. just sort of, we can't control everything. We're yeah. not actually in control. So for the next last chapters, the art of failure. And basically, there's quite a few questions down here, but I think they all boil down to the same sort of thing. And it goes back to what you're saying about that guy who was doing the painting, the artistic level of things. So do you think that fear of failure we suffer from in our society? Yes, I do. I mean, it's difficult here because I think it's very easy to make generalizations and I think it goes deeper than a sort of a, an individual thing, uh, really, because I think that 
Uh, well, certainly, I mean, you know, one of the things I always tell curates when they when they first arrive is that I want them to experiment and to try new things out, you know, and, and not to be frightened of, of failure um, or, you know, trying something that just doesn't work, because actually that is the way by which they learn and develop and mature best. But also we benefit because some of the things that they do, the sort of creative ideas, live on, you know, within the parish and, and, and grow and develop. In my, my heart and my mind, I know that set ourselves free from the fear of failure, to be willing to sort of try things out and experiment and to be creative and to venture. And yet at the same time, there is something um, within the, the whole, you know, way society is, is structured at, the, at this time, I think, that, that worships success. You know, right down to the sort of, you know, I, I remember my mum, you always say, oh, you know, he's done well for himself, you know, and, uh, and basically the, the term he's done well for himself means he's got a very nice swanky house and a nice car and probably a job that delivers quite a good income. Whether he's happy or not didn't seem to come into the equation. But, you know, uh, uh, it's quite deep rooted, I think. And, you know, even within the church, we pay lip service to... We, we want creativity, we want to, to sort of almost explore that deeper spirituality to draw closer with God. And yet at the end of the day, what, you know, everybody is really interested in is, is, is the number of people attending services. Um, and somehow the two don't sit comfortably together. I don't know quite what it is, why we are so wedded to the idea of of being successful rather than just being faithful and doing what is asked of us. I think, um, yeah, I think in, in a funny way, what we've done is we've gone right back to this Greek understanding of life, which is about becoming the hero. Mm -hmm. So if you think about Greek culture, not now, but like people like uh, Achilles and Hector and all those old, yes. old, great Greek stories, Hercules, they're all about the, the powerful, the hero, lives on through his story, through his success. So the way to yeah. live on is to make your mark and to be that powerful, successful person who puts their mark on history. And that's the story that drives our society, But the, rather than the Christian story. But the awful thing about that is that you can never achieve it. So our kids are told in school, you've got to be successful. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Uh, you've got to achieve things. You've got to make your mark on the world. But it doesn't matter what mark you make on the world. It's never going to be enough for you. And you can prove that with celebrities, which is why they're so miserable, because they <laughs> followed that and they know that really those things aren't actually that important. Success and everything else isn't important. And that's something the church can really do is is to speak against that and to embrace failure and embrace forgiveness because we, we we're not going to achieve everything and we're not going to be able to do those things and as a person who's well i don't know you say driven or whatever but i suppose i have sort of got out of i followed that for a while getting out of the valleys and going and making making my mark on the world but it's just empty 
it's just it's just pointless because that isn't what life's about life's about becoming who god has called you to be fulfilling the the vocation that god has given you to be who you were called to be and being always always right and always a success that's quite a that's a tyranny really I always feel sorry for teachers, you know, as a, as a governor. I never thought as a kid I'd feel sorry for a teacher, but uh, I feel sorry for teachers when I see the way they're forced to work with all the success criteria and all those sorts of other things. And it's, it's like grinding every day that they've got to improve, they've got to be better, they've got to do this, they've got to do that. And it's the same in industry, and it is sort of, oppressing our whole society this culture of success and failure being bad there's a great freedom in failure i think and that's what the cross is about isn't it you know it's about winning by losing yeah i mean it, it's an interesting one this because you know i feel that somehow in the midst of it all that, that there's a sort of a subtle misunderstanding that's gone on because you know surely it's a good thing to want to do something that um, helps to make society better, you know, to, to make a positive contribution to society and to improve lives for, you know, life for, for, for others. And, you know, I think that is, is all very noble, but actually somehow we have twisted that into this concept of being successful, which actually I think is a, is a more self-centered concept rather than altruistic concept and also it if you like still make a positive contribution for society by making lots of mistakes so you know the, the overall balance sheet so I was reading um, at the weekend about the the professor who invented the MRI scanner and you know uh, his first one was was incredibly weak and was was put together with copper pipe from the local plumbers and things like that you know uh, and, and actually there was lots of failure on the way and and actually he was rejected completely out of hand uh, and it wasn't until eventually he did a scan of somebody and revealed that there were, were cancers there that nobody had any idea of, that people began to take him seriously. But I'm quite sure, you know, there were lots of trial and error and actually the sort of creativity came out of that freedom to explore, freedom to sort of, you know, try something out and discover it doesn't work, to go back to the drawing board, try something new. And so, you know, it was through that process which might at times have seemed negative, but actually it was a very positive program, pro, uh, process and yielded something that is now so important in modern medicine, in a sense, the hero of medical physics, I think. Well, that's the weird thing is the whole scientific methods based on failure. It's yeah. the idea that it's, that's the idea. You keep on trying stuff and in the end, something will work. And you just got to look at the live streaming and what we've done online for that as a practical example. Uh, I encourage everyone not to go and look at the early stuff we uploaded to YouTube because it's really bad. But you can actually see there a gradual progression of things getting better and how we've done stuff. So uh, as a simple thing, I suppose back in July, me and Justin tried to live stream a service using 
various bits of kit and uh, it died after about five minutes and we spent about two hours trying to set it up beforehand and now we can set things up in about 15 minutes and it works pretty much every time but you you didn't get there overnight you got there through many 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 failures and mess ups and the point of it is is to learn from uh, the things that that we get wrong so seeing failure not as a bad thing in a sense but an opportunity to to learn and to improve and one thing i thought of when i was reading the art of failures it goes a lots of arty examples in this about blankets and things and stuff like that but life itself through the evolutionary process is actually the same thing it's through the errors and through things going wrong that everything is created so the whole of the of life itself is created by things going wrong and then being redeemed so that's how evolution works that's one for the nerds sorry one for the nerds it makes me think about something joe wick said the other day he said my 10 year overnight success so he's been going for like 10 years yes but it's yes. only really since covid for so people say oh he's an overnight success they don't see the stuff that goes before yes Yes. And I think that that yearning that we have sometimes for things to be spot on is where is the is where we get it wrong, rather than responding to suffering and failure in a in a positive way. Yeah. So what this almost brings us sort of full circle back to the beginning. It's in a sense, you know, when suffering hits, so not getting trapped in the why question. So when your live stream didn't work, not just banging your head against the wall and say, why, 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 why? But actually, it's, it's the sort of, okay, what next? You know, where do we go from here? How do we sort this out? How can we move forward? Uh, and having that sort of attitude that, um, you know, in a sense, can rise above adversity. And, uh, and actually, you know, a lot of the most inspiring people have been through quite a lot of pain and trial and difficulty. I mean, I, I remember... Uh, I think I was at university, or I may even still be at school, when I read the story of a uh, of a young American girl who dived into um, shallow water and broke her back. And she'd been a very sort of sporty, active person. But actually, she then, through her books, uh, became very inspirational to sort of people in terms of an example of how to rise above adversity. Winston Churchill often quoted as being you know, the greatest statesman of all, the sort of huge success and someone who everybody looks up to. But actually, if you go back over his career, it was full of a lot of pain and agony and mistakes and being fired from one government and criticised heavily for all sorts of things that he did. Uh, and it was almost through that and having the sort of the, the ability to say, OK, what next? That actually, by the time it came to those critical years between 1940 and 45, you know, he knew how to respond. He, he was able to draw on all that experience uh, and lead this country through through some of its darkest hours. Yeah, so, well, that's why he's not very popular in the, in the valleys, because he shot all the miners in Tonopandi, so uh, that's the <laughs> yes, thing he yeah. shot in the general strike. He, 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 he did a lot of sort of quite really dodgy things, stuff. didn't he? Yes, really that's right. bad yes, stuff. Because right. he, he was fired from the Admiralty as well, wasn't he, over some, something that he did. It's Gallipoli. Know? Yeah, he tried oh, to invade right. Gallipoli, Gallipoli. Yes, and they yes, all went yes, completely... Yes. He resigned as well. He re... But that's the thing. Yes, I yes. think it's 
But our attitude though to failure as well is important and our ability to forgive, forgive ourselves and forgive others, which is which is lacking in our society, because we have this idea that everybody's got to be perfect, everything's got to go right. And the problem is really is we can never predict the outcome of our actions, but we have to act in the world, which means that the only way out of that problem is forgiveness, because we are going to mess up. And I suppose in response to suffering, really, is that is the ultimate gift that um, we celebrate at Easter, is we have on the cross on Good Friday, the ultimate expression of the best and worst in humanity and Christ forgives us for if we enter into the story of Good Friday we can see ourselves in it the people who get carried away with the crowd the people who uh, don't know what to do and run away all those sorts of elements of the story is they're just human beings they're not psychotic evil people they're just like us and Christ forgiving them so so that we can then be a new creation and move on I think that's the the essence of it so thanks for talking to us today Ian uh, and for doing this podcast (laughs) and uh, we'll we'll hope that everybody has a a lovely Easter when it comes around and we eventually come out of lockdown and we hope that you've enjoyed reading Drops Like Stars and the the podcasts and the discussions in the books so we'll we'll see you later.